This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 77th episode of the program. Today is January 13th of 2017. And before we get started, I want to thank these people for joining the independent progressive media revolution. So today we have Brian Blumberg, Devin Kirsten, and David Arcane. So all of these individuals decided to support the program either by becoming members, Patreon patrons, or submitting a donation to us via PayPal. If you'd also like to join the independent progressive media revolution, you could visit the links down below in the description box, or you can simply support the show by liking and sharing our videos or whitelisting us on Adblock. So on today's program, I will talk about David Brock's apology to Bernie Sanders and his supporters, how Bernie Sanders is reforming the Democratic Party, and why he's buying into the Democratic Party's anti-Russia hysteria. I'll tell you my thoughts on that. And also, Bernie Sanders tells us why he thinks Donald Trump won. Spoiler alert, it's because he thinks the Democratic Party is out of touch. Also, I'll talk about Keith Ellison's run to be the next DNC chair and how Cory Booker, a 2020 presidential candidate most likely, sold out the American people in favor of his donors. Also, I'll talk about Senator Jeff Sessions' war on marijuana, Rex Tillerson's threat to the climate, Donald Trump's conflict of interest, as well as Obama's overall legacy. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. We've got a great show ahead. Enjoy. So it's pretty obvious that Senator Cory Booker is positioning himself for a 2020 presidential run. So in an effort to boost his national profile and presumably give him something to brag about in four years, he decided to break Senate tradition and testify against his colleague Jeff Sessions during his confirmation hearing to be Trump's attorney general. Let's watch. I know that some of my many colleagues are unhappy that I am breaking with Senate tradition to testify on the nomination of one of my colleagues, but I believe like perhaps all of my colleagues in the Senate, that in the choice between standing with Senate norms or standing up for what my conscience tells me is best for our country, I will always choose conscience and country. Senator Sessions has not demonstrated a commitment to a central requisite of the job, to aggressively pursue the congressional mandate of civil rights, equal rights, and justice for all of our citizens. In fact, at numerous times in his career, he has demonstrated a hostility towards these convictions and has worked to frustrate attempts to advance these ideals. If confirmed, Senator Sessions will be required to pursue justice for women, but his record indicates that he won't. He will be expected to defend the equal rights of gay and lesbian and transgender Americans, but his record indicates that he won't. He will be expected to defend voting rights but his record indicates that he won't. He will be expected to defend the rights of immigrants and affirm their human dignity, but the record indicates that he won't. His record indicates that as attorney general, he would object to the growing national bipartisan movement towards criminal justice reform. His record indicates that we cannot count on him to support state and national efforts towards bringing justice to the justice system and people on both sides of the aisle who readily admit that the justice system as it stands now is biased against the poor, 
against drug addicted, against mentally ill, and against people of color. Now, admittedly, I enjoyed watching that, with the exception of the awkward politician hand gesture there. (laughs) But, I mean, aside from that, unfortunately, we have no real reason to believe that Cory Booker is as vigorously opposed to injustice as he says he is. And this isn't because he's allegedly a a hypocrite who once said that he was honored to work with Senator Jeff Sessions, like right here. I feel blessed and honored to have partnered with Senator Sessions in being the Senate sponsors of this important award. Honored to have partnered with Senator Sessions. Now, Cory Booker actually addressed this and reiterated that same sentiment in this speech. But that's not why I'm opposed to Cory Booker. And even though he's going to get a lot of good press because of this, let's look at the person who Cory Booker really is. So, according to New Republic, fresh off a rousing speech against Jeff Sessions' nomination to become Attorney General, Booker voted against an affordable drug proposal from Senators Amy Klobuchar and Senator Bernie Sanders on. Wednesday evening. Had it passed, the bill would have created a reserve fund to allow Americans to import inexpensive prescription drugs from Canada. Booker was one of 13 Democrats to reject it. A boon to Big Pharma. Now, if you're wondering how someone who seems so self-righteous, who claims to care about doing the right thing, could vote against something that's a no-brainer, that would obviously help out the American people, well, the answer is very simple. He sold out. So when you look at Cory Booker's campaign contributions, he has accepted nearly $386,000 from the pharmaceutical industry, almost $243,000 from health professionals, and $368,000 from the health insurance industry. So in total, Booker accepted almost $1 million from the health sector. Now, Cory Booker clearly made this vote exclusively to appease his donors in the pharmaceutical industry. And when he runs in 2020 and tries to remind people about that time he was courageous and testified against his colleague Jeff Sessions, let's remember this, because clearly someone who was willing to sell out to that degree and not vote for a bill that could have saved lives... That's egregious. It shows a lot about your character. It shows that you're a bad person, Cory Booker. Now, look, there were more people than just Cory Booker that voted for this. Now, I want to highlight Cory Booker because we know he's going to run for president in four years. But let's also call out these other 12 Democrats who were cowards as well. So we have Michael Bennett of Colorado, Maria Cantwell of Washington, Thomas Carper of Delaware, Bob Casey Jr. of Pennsylvania, Chris Coons of Delaware, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, Robert Menendez of New Jersey, Pat Murray of Washington, John Tester of Montana, and Mark Warner of Virginia. All of these so-called Democrats are sellouts. They're loathsome, and their action here was detestable. And if you dislike what they did, I suggest you call them and you voice your grievance to them. Call Cory Booker and let him know that if he decides to run for president in four years, we're going to remember this traitorous vote that he did. He betrayed the American people. And if he thinks that his speech that he gave to Jeff Sessions will overshadow this ridiculous vote that he did to appease his donors, no, he's got another thing coming. We will remember this in four years, Cory. You messed up bad. You betrayed the American people for the oligarchy, and that's unforgivable. That in the choice between standing with Senate norms or standing up for what my conscience tells me is best for our country, I will always choose conscience and country. Why the fuck you lying? Why, Why you 
Senator Jeff Sessions had his first confirmation hearing the other day, and there were a lot of interesting moments. So, for example, he was constantly bombarded by protesters. promptly try to label you as a racist or a bigot or whatever you want to say. How does that make you feel? And this is your chance to say something to those people. Well, it does not feel good. Now that was awesome, and I commend all of those people for being courageous enough to do that. Now, besides Jeff Sessions having overtly racist and homophobic views, he poses not just a threat to civil rights as Attorney General, but also a threat to civil liberties. Previously, he stated that we need to let people know that this drug is dangerous and you cannot play with it. It is not funny, it's not something to laugh about, and to send that message with clarity that good people don't smoke marijuana. So, with him believing that good people don't smoke marijuana, well, as Attorney General, he would have the power to enforce federal laws against the states who legalize marijuana to use recreationally or for medical purposes. So, as Attorney General, what would he do? Would he actually wage war on marijuana like we think he would? Well, according to attention, Donald Trump's nominee for Attorney General wouldn't rule out a federal crackdown on marijuana during his confirmation hearing Tuesday, telling lawmakers they should change the laws prohibiting the use of cannabis if they don't want him to enforce them. The senator, who has previously criticized the federal government for declining to enforce prohibition in states that have legalized for medical or recreational purposes, said that he won't commit to not enforcing federal laws. Over two dozen states allow the use of marijuana for medical purposes and recreational use is legal in California, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, and the District of Columbia. Sessions was asked if he'd uphold those same guidelines set by attorneys general under the Obama administration. I think some of them are truly valuable in evaluating cases, but fundamentally the criticism that I think as legitimate was that they may not have been followed, he replied. Using good judgment will be a responsibility of mine. It's a good sign that Senator Sessions seemed open to keeping the Obama guidelines, if maybe with a little stricter enforcement of their restrictions. Tom Angeli, founder of Marijuana Majority, told Attention, Still, the truth is his answer was skillfully evasive, and I hope other senators continue to press for more clarity on how he would approach the growing numbers of states enacting new marijuana laws. So even though it's being framed as an open question as to what he would do as Attorney General, I think the biggest takeaway is this quote, Sessions went on to say that if Congress didn't want him to enforce federal marijuana laws, that they should change those laws. Now, out of all those things, I think that's the most telling. And it really implies that, yes, as Attorney General, I will enforce these arbitrary federal laws. Now, there's a lot of things that politicians do 
that piss off the American people and things that they do that should piss off the, the American people that don't piss them off. But if there's any two policies that I think you can do to really strike a chord with the American people and get them to rise up and try to fight you is one, if you try to mess with the internet and two, if you try to take away their marijuana. Now, this isn't just for recreational uses, even though we are adults and we should have the right to smoke marijuana if we want to because it's a free country and we pay our taxes. But also, this is immoral. This is unethical. This goes further than civil liberties because medical marijuana has a plethora of medical benefits. Now, even though Republicans like to lie and obfuscate the truth about medicinal marijuana, the fact is that it saves lives. For example, marijuana limits or prevents children with epilepsy from having severe seizures. It also improves the appetite of cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy and alleviates their nausea. There's even some evidence that it can be used to kill cancer cells, but this is admittedly inconclusive. Now, it can also make autoimmune diseases like lupus more manageable, and it significantly reduces their pain. I've seen this first with my sister who suffered with lupus for many years and then she began getting medical marijuana and it's like she had her life back she was a new person again and additionally this impacts people in a positive way who have mental health issues like depression like obsessive compulsive disorder like panic disorder like anxiety so to take that away from them and say that states don't even get to decide there it's complete and utterly arbitrary, and it's unacceptable in a free country. So it's very clear that as Attorney General, Jeff Sessions will be waging war on marijuana. He wants to take away your marijuana. Whatever happened to small government? Republicans like to claim that they're for small government and states' rights, but, you know, when it comes to things that they don't like... They're not so in favor of states' rights. So if you don't like this, if you disagree with Jeff Sessions waging a war on medical and re recreational marijuana... Tell him. You can call him at 202-224-4124. His office number again, 202-224-4124. And of course, I wouldn't ask you guys to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. So I'm going to call him and leave him a message and let him know uh, that he will not be waging war on marijuana as attorney general unless he wants to see extreme grassroots resistance. Hello, you've reached the office of Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama. I'm sorry that no one's available to take your call right now, but please leave your name, telephone number, and any message you might have for the senator I'm after not the leave my tone. Number. We'll call you back as soon as possible. Thank you. Hello, this message is for Senator Jeff Sessions. Uh, my name is Mike Figueredo, and I am a taxpaying citizen. And as Attorney General, I just want Jeff Sessions to know that he will not be waging a war on medicinal and recreational marijuana unless he wants to see extreme grassroots resistance because the American people, we're adults, we are allowed to make our own decisions, and Jeff Sessions, as a conservative, I would expect him to be in favor of small government like much of his Republican colleagues, so I want him to be consistent and actually be in favor of states' rights and small government and allow people to do what they are entitled to do under state laws. Tell him not to get involved with it and to let him know that we will be protesting every single day if he decides to 
arbitrarily enforce laws that shouldn't exist to begin with. So he needs to continue with the tradition of Obama's attorney generals and actually do what's right and allow people to take medical marijuana to help save their lives and make lives more manageable, to help them cure their seizures, to help them fight depression. And also, please tell him that as grown adults, we're allowed to drink alcohol. We should also be allowed to use recreational marijuana. And we're going to do that regardless if he enforces the law or not. So it's a matter of whether or not he is going to face grassroots resistance, really. So just let him know that if he's going to take on marijuana, he's going to lose because the American people are not in favor of that policy. And we will try to stop him at every step of the way. There you have it. So uh, call Jeff Sessions and let him know. We don't have to sit back and get screwed over and take it lightly. If Democrats are going to fight, then it's up to us. We can fight ourselves. So uh, yeah, Try it. I dare you, Jeff Sessions. Try it. Not going to go well for you. During his confirmation hearing to be the next Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson was asked a question about climate change, and given that he is the CEO of a company culpable in the acceleration of climate change, well, you would have expected him to either dodge the question or just outright deny the existence of anthropogenic climate change, but his answer was actually relatively surprising to some. Uh, I came to my personal position over a, about 20 years as an engineer and a scientist understanding the evolution of the science. Uh, came to the conclusion a few years ago that the risk of climate change does exist and that the consequences of it could be serious enough that action should be taken. The type of action uh, is, seems to be where the largest areas of debate uh, exist in the public discourse. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that the U.S. has done a pretty good job. This is not quite as succinct as I was hoping. <laughs> would you, did, would you, uh, it's my understanding that you believe human I think beings, we should let him finish, Mr. Chairman. Hum, human activity, human activity, you believe that human activity based on your belief in science is contributing to climate change. The increase in the greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere are having an effect. Our ability to predict that effect is very limited. So by watching that, most people would probably be inclined to believe that he's lukewarm on the topic, right? Because his answer certainly wasn't adequate, but by most people's standards, it was better than they would have expected. However, don't be fooled by his answer because your expectations are in fact still correct. The Intercept explains, climate denial takes on many forms these days, some considerably more subtle than others. And at Wednesday's hearing, Tillerson displayed a mastery of obfuscation that only a son of ExxonMobil, a chief benefactor of climate denial, could have achieved, ostensibly acknowledging climate change while still denying the need to actually do any about it that might significantly slow the burning of fossil fuels. Those listening to the hearing could be forgiven if they left believing Tillerson had committed to remaining a party to the Paris Climate Agreement, with its moderate goal of keeping the rise in Earth temperature below 3.6 degrees, but his leaky language left plenty of space for promises to fall through. Tillerson said repeatedly that he would push for the U.S. to retain a seat at the table, yet he noted President-elect Trump's commitment to America first and said that funding for international climate 
agreements would be reviewed from the bottom up. When Senator Jeff Merkley asked him to acknowledge the scientific finding that climate change increases the odds that certain types of extreme weather events will occur, Tillerson replied, there's some literature out there that suggests that there's other literature out there that says it's inconclusive. Such obtuse answers are a hallmark of the contemporary denial movement and reveal a suspicious lack of enthusiasm about heeding what the most definitive studies say. Tillerson is right that we can't predict exactly how deeply climate change will unravel us, but the range of possibilities laid out in innumerable studies warn against a wait-and-see attitude. The simple truth is that as Tillerson was shifting his corporation's rhetoric away from climate doubt, he was also pushing forward a program of oil and gas extraction that, if it continues apace, would prevent nations from achieving the Paris Agreement temperature goal. Tillerson's understanding of climate science and his stance on the Paris Agreement could have major consequences for the planet. As Secretary of State, he would become the agreement's steward, playing a key role in determining how quickly countries decarbonize their economies and in holding the U.S. to its emissions pledges. Failure to meet the Paris goal would likely have dire consequences for global populations, but the possibility of success is already spelling trouble for ExxonMobil because an agreement to burn fewer fossil fuels inevitably reduces the value of the vast oil and gas reserves currently held by the major oil companies. So in conclusion, you should not be fooled by Rex Tillerson. He poses an existential threat to humanity, and I'm not being hyperbolic by saying that. He plans to, at a minimum, not do anything about climate change, but worse, he could back out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, that agreement doesn't go far enough, in my opinion. I think we need more, and it's not ambitious enough, but to back out of that and what little progress we could make because of that agreement, that would be catastrophic potentially given how big of a country we are and how much fossil fuels we emit now admittedly i don't think we're gonna get any better than this someone who obfuscates the truth is probably the best we could have with the trump administration he's not going to get someone to be secretary of state that believes in climate change and certainly that believes that it's anthropogenic he's just not going to do that so i think that someone who lies and is disingenuous is the best that we can get, which is really scary. So it's getting to the point where we need to stop relying on politicians. It's time we take drastic actions as individuals to reduce our carbon footprint. And this is going to amount to a significant change in the way of life for many of us. We can make a difference in our own households. So it's little things like conserving energy, choosing to bike to work instead of drive to work or uh, take public transit, choosing not to eat meat anymore because factory farming, as much as we all don't want to admit it, is a huge contributor to climate change. It's time we individually act because the government, they failed us. They're not going to do anything about climate change that's meaningful, that will actually save the planet. So it's in our hands now. Best believe that we are still going to pressure him to do something. Because as we've seen with Tom Wheeler, who was appointed to the FCC after he was a Comcast lobbyist, he tried to kill net neutrality. But after a lot of grassroots resistance, he was forced to uh, change his tune. So we need to do that same thing to Rex Tillerson. We need to call his office every single day. We need to protest in his office and not leave him alone until he acknowledges that anthropogenic climate change is a reality and he actually is going to act to do something about it. And in the meanwhile, while we're pressuring him, it starts with us. We've got to do something to reduce our own carbon footprint. It's tough, but 
This is where we're at if we want to go forward as a species. The Democratic Party has shown time and again that they are cowards and that they won't even stand up for their principles or put up a fight against Republicans when they're in power. But now, with Republicans in control of both houses of Congress and Donald Trump in the Oval Office, I am fully expecting them to lay down flat and die and not put up a fight at all. However, there's one person who is trying to prevent that from happening. His name is Bernie Sanders, and he explains on Al Sharpton's show on MSNBC what he's going to do to kick their ass and get them motivated to fight. What can Democrats do? Because everywhere I travel, Senator, people are saying the Democrats are not showing any backbone. You're one of the few even standing up fighting. I mean, what can be done in a parliamentary way and what could be done from a bully pulpit way to resist this stuff? Well, we have got to do everything that we can to resist these horrific nominations that Trump has brought forth. I mean, they are the worst. They're almost unimaginable, uh, the kind of people he's bringing forth. You got a guy who's going to, he's proposing to head the EPA who does not believe in environmental protection, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, this is what I am trying to do, it is among many other things, <laughs> I am trying to revitalize the Democratic Party and get this party to be a party that doesn't simply go out to wealthy people's homes raising money, but becomes a grassroots party. And that's why I'm supporting Keith Ellison to be the new chair of the Democratic Party. The good news for us, Al, is that on issue after issue, whether it is raising the minimum wage, whether it is pay equity, whether it is climate change, whether it is moving toward health care for all, the American people support a progressive agenda, not giving tax breaks to billionaires and cutting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So on next Sunday, next Sunday, we are going to be holding rallies all across this country. For the first time, Democratic senators are going to be out in a coordinated way. Members of the House are going to be out with the unions, with senior groups, right. with Planned Parenthood, because they want to defund Planned Parenthood. We are going to bring people together. We're going to get people calling up, emailing senators and members of Congress and tell them, no, you are not going to cut Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid and give tax breaks. I, I, to I'm going to get back to you. Democrats are going to have to reach out to the many, many millions of people who are independents today. A lot of people, Al, are not enthusiastic about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Too many of them are voting Republican. So it means more diversity, bringing more African-American leadership, more Latino leadership into the Democratic Party, more women into the Democratic Party. We need more, not less. But what we have also got to do is talk about fundamental economic issues. It is not acceptable that the top one-tenth of one percent owns as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. That is an issue that impacts everybody. We got to rebuild our infrastructure, create millions of jobs. We got to make college we got to make public colleges and universities tuition free. That's a black issue. It's a white issue. It's a Latino issue. It's a Native American, Asian American issue. It impacts everybody. So, Al, there is, and I know I've been criticized for this, and it hurts me, and I don't like it. We need not less diversity. We need more diversity. But we got to bring our people together, all of our people, to say that we're going to create a damn government that represents all of us and not just the 1%. And that's how I believe we do it. So Bernie Sanders has two main strategies. One is to get them to actually leave Washington, D.C. and go out and talk to people, 
talk to their constituents. What a crazy idea, right? Speaking to the people who you represent. And two, he wants to bring more people into the party. Now, if I had a strategy, this would be my strategy because I think it's the right strategy. So going out and talking to constituents, this is something that's a no-brainer. It's common sense. It's what I fully expect public officials to do. And when you look at other countries, they often do talk to their constituents. It's really odd that we have a bunch of elites in Washington, D.C. that never leave Washington, D.C. They come home, they make a speech, and then they leave. But it's very rare for them to actually get out and have real conversations with real voters. They would rather get cozy with liberal elites and go to billionaire fundraisers. And that is something that communicates to the American people that you're not on their side. And Democrats cannot get this through their skull. So I'm glad that Bernie Sanders is finally showing them, look, even if you're not corrupt, which all of them are, but even if you're not, think of the optics. You're not talking to your constituents, yet you're hanging out with liberal elites. That looks really bad. Get your shit together. Get out there. Go to your district. Go to your state and talk to people. Talk to the people who put you in office and find out what they want. Stop taking calls from donors for uh, maybe like five minutes and actually talk to the people who voted for you. This is a strategy that's common sense. Finally, Bernie Sanders said it. It shouldn't have to be said, but Bernie Sanders said it, and I'm very thankful for that. Now, also, bringing more people into the party, this is something that it's a no-brainer. This is what political parties do. I mean, this is their number one goal. Your objective as a party is to grow and big, bring more people in so that way you could win more often. The DNC had the opposite strategy. They tried to drive people out of the party. So if you weren't a true Democrat, if you were an independent uh, even though you were liberal, well, you had no business voting in our primaries. This was the attitude that Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Hillary Clinton had. They celebrated closed primaries. We found this out in John Podesta's emails. So you can't have this attitude. If you want to grow as a party, if you want to win, if you want to defeat an easily beatable party who complete and utterly sold out to corporations, then you have to grow the party by excluding people and telling them that if you're not a true Democrat, if you weren't in the party for 25 years like me because I'm 150 years old, well, then you can't be with us. You can't caucus with us and don't even bother voting for us. Well, when you put out that message, it will resonate. Voters know if they're not wanted. Voters know if you try to shun them and you did try to shun them. So I think that the strategy is brilliant. Now, that first portion of what he said is really important because when you call up politicians, when you speak to politicians, that really humanizes us as constituents and they realize, oh, these are people that are actually suffering that I'm ignoring. And I thought that Keith Ellison made a really good point on MSNBC when he talked about the power that we have to simply just make a phone call and what that does to our elected officials. Take a look. You know, this is one of the most important lessons to learn in a democracy. Calling your congressman works. It actually does. Do you get a lot of calls? We get a ton of calls, but when they start concentrating on a particular sub subject, we focus our attention on that subject. I mean, the thing is, I've had uh, folks call me on uh, horse slaughter, for example, and we got to dig into it and figure out what's going on. But when it's a big topic, immigration, ethics reform, when it's a big topic, you know, minimum wage, stuff like that. We really do drive uh, uh, based on what our constituents are telling us. So I, I tell people, you know, every single member of Congress and every state legislature and city council knows who put them in office and who can take them out. And if you exert your power, 
you can uh, you can make a big difference. So I absolutely love that Bernie Sanders is working so hard to reform the Democratic Party. Now, I don't know if he's going to be successful. That's the problem. He has the right strategy, but lots of people within the party have sold out entirely. You have people that will talk the talk, like Cory Booker, but behind the scenes, they're voting for things that their donors want almost exclusively. So, I mean, what Bernie Sanders is trying to do is polish a turd and try to make it not stink anymore. But I don't know if that's possible. So, uh, you know, I, I appreciate what Bernie Sanders is doing, but unfortunately, I'm not very optimistic uh, that it will resonate with Democrats, and I think it's probably just going to fall on deaf ears. So we'll see what happens, but... This is the right strategy, and if they uh, don't wake up, they're going to lose a lot of voters and be defeated again and again to Donald Trump and the Republicans. So I've got a short but sweet clip of Bernie Sanders explaining how after running a campaign that was revolutionary, where millions of Americans stood up to the billionaire class, we ended up electing a billionaire who is now putting more billionaires in the White House. How the hell did this happen? And his explanation is that the Democrats are out of touch and that they are partially to blame. And what he said validated everything that us progressives have been saying all along. The rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poor. The middle class is getting squeezed. The working class is getting left behind. And in a year where your message, that message, all of that undeniable, that really took off uh, in the primary process for you, despite the fact, again, you, it seemed like you had everything stacked against you. How could it be in 2016 that that year that began with your inspirational campaign ended up with the election of a billionaire whose cabinet Actually, we hear together, I, I, I don't know if the numbers are accurate or not, but I've read some, some stats that say his cabinet appointees alone uh, control more income personally than one-third of all Americans. Well, that's a very good question, Joe. And I think, honestly, it speaks to the failure of the Democratic Party. There was once a time in this country, FDR, Harry Truman, where working people were clear which party was on their side, which party was prepared to take on the big money interests. Uh, remember, remember Roosevelt talking about taking on the economic royalists. He was proud that they hated him. That's the kind of vision we need for the Democratic Party. If the billionaire class hates me or hates other progressives, we should be proud of that. Because we have got to start identifying with the working people who have seen their jobs go to China and Mexico, the people who are making 10 bucks an hour, the elderly people who can't afford prescription mm -hmm. drugs. Mm -hmm. We have got to bring those people together to fight the big money interests who have so much power today. So what he said there was a reality check that I don't think the Democratic Party establishment wanted to hear because... Throughout the course of Hillary Clinton's campaign, you constantly heard this notion that was implied that the voters would ultimately fail Hillary Clinton, that we were the ones responsible for supporting her. We were supposed to get out and support her, even if she wasn't putting forward policies that would actually benefit us. So it's always this talk about how the voters are going to fail the party and not the other way around. So when Bernie Sanders said it speaks to the failure of the Democratic Party, you know a bunch of heads in Washington, D.C. exploded right then and there because that is something that they don't want to hear. The Democratic Party is way out of touch. I would have never left the Democratic Party if they hadn't betrayed me. See, I've always been the same. My policy positions have remained consistent. 
But the Democratic Party, they've become more and more and more out of touch with everyday voters. They were once the party of FDR, and Jimmy Carter was really the last true FDR Democrat. And after him, you had Democrats move to the right, starting with Bill Clinton. He facilitated this rightward neoliberal shift of the Democratic Party because at the time, that's what he felt would make the Democratic Party more electable because we were just coming off of Reaganism. And people were just, they loved Reagan. And even though he was a terrible president, uh, Reagan was someone who was very popular among the left and the right. So in order to be electorally viable, the Democrats saw moving to the right, or at least the center, as a strategy that would help them win. And certainly it worked at the time. But subsequently, we got more of the same when Obama was elected. He was a centrist. If Hillary Clinton would have been elected, she would have continued with the same centrist right-wing policy. I mean, if you look at her political compass score, she is a right-wing authoritarian, whereas Bernie Sanders is simply on the left. Bernie Sanders is not an extremist. Bernie Sanders might be an independent, but he's where the heart and soul of the Democratic Party is, hence why millions of people were inspired by his campaign. Bernie Sanders is an FDR Democrat, a social Democrat is what the Democratic Party used to be. So for him to say that it speaks to the failure of the Democratic Party, I think that's a powerful, powerful message, and they needed to hear it. It is the case that the Democratic Party failed the people. It is the case that they're out of touch. The working class no longer has a viable political party. We do have the Greens, but with our biased electoral system, we live in a first-past-the-post single-member district system, where it's almost impossible for them to win. They could barely win seats at the local levels. So it's almost unfeasible and unimaginable for them to win the White House unless we get electoral reform. So the Democratic Party is the one party that can effectively oppose Trump's agenda and the Republicans' harmful agenda. So if they don't wake up, we have nothing. We have Republicans' control of all three branches of government with no good checks on their power. I mean, it's scary. Another thing Bernie Sanders said, which I think is not something that you typically hear in Washington, was that if the billionaire class hates me or hates other progressives, we should be proud of that. Absolutely. And someone like FDR said the same thing decades ago. He said that if the wealthy elites hate me, I welcome their hate. And Bernie Sanders echoed this same exact thing, almost verbatim, during the primary. And it's true. There's only about 500 billionaires in the country, a little over 500, but they control almost all the policies. They bought off every single politician in the country, on the left and the right. We have no power anymore. We have no voice. Their wealth, their power drowns out our voices. So yeah, I'm tired of that. I think that they should have the same amount of power as I have. It's not fair that because they have more money, they have exponentially more power than average citizens. But many people within the Democratic Party establishment, like Hillary Clinton and Cory Booker, they embrace liberal elites and they surround themselves around liberal elites because they think that raising millions of dollars is the only way you can win and run an effective campaign. But that's not true. Bernie Sanders proved that that is false. The party's out of touch. It's rotten to the core. And if they don't wake up, and listen to what Bernie Sanders is saying. It's going to be too late. Not only will the party die or become irrelevant, but Republicans are going to push through all of the most harmful things you could imagine. Cutting Social Security. Privatizing Medicaid. Cutting Medicaid. Like, it's unimaginable to me. So if they don't wake up, if they don't fight, if they don't start appealing to the American people, 
they're not going to be the ones that suffer. They might lose their job, but most of them are millionaires. So they've got to wake up and listen to what Bernie's saying because it's the truth. So I think it's safe to say that David Brock, who is a Clinton surrogate who operates multiple pro-Clinton super PACs, is the most vicious attack dog that Bill and Hillary Clinton have. And throughout the primaries, he slandered Bernie Sanders relentlessly, and he even penned a hypocritical open letter to Bernie Sanders asking Bernie Sanders to stop attacking Hillary Clinton. So basically... He assassinated Bernie Sanders' character and then had the audacity to ask Bernie Sanders to basically stop campaigning against Hillary Clinton. So, this guy is ridiculous. Now, he penned another open letter to Bernie Sanders, but it's not what you're thinking. So, typically, when I hear that David Brock penned a letter to Bernie Sanders, I would expect it to be something that's terrible with him... Um, slandering burning in favor of Hillary Clinton, but this time it's a little bit different. So the title of his letter this time is Dear Senator Sanders, I'm with you in the fight ahead. He states, it's no secret who I supported. I was one of the most visible and vocal advocates of Secretary Hillary Clinton. Many others backed you, Senator Sanders, with contagious zeal. At times during the Democratic primary, I was criticized for being too aggressive in my support for Hillary Clinton. You don't say. And rightly so. Looking back, I recognize that there were a few moments when my drive to put Hillary Clinton in the White House led me to take too stiff a jab. I own up to that. I regret it, and I apologize to you and your supporters. Now, we'll just stop right there, and let me assure you that as far as we know, this is not a joke. So, this is a really long open letter to Bernie Sanders, calling for a truce between the Hillary Clinton wing and the Senator Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. Now... There's a lot, so I can't get to all of it, but let's hear him out. With Trump's inauguration looming just days away, now is the time for us to unite as a party and a progressive movement and put the resentments of the past behind us. We who reject Trump's bankrupt leadership must heal old wounds, reorient ourselves, and embrace common goals. We must unify in resistance. With the stakes so high, I pledge to help harness the passion that you and your supporters unleashed to empower progressives, Democrats up and down the ballot, and to hold Donald Trump accountable. I plan to fight like hell for the next four years for our shared values and ideas, and I know that you will too. Senator Sanders, your candidate electrified millions from students to working-class families you inspired Americans to be more engaged in the political process we need you to continue to be the voice of reason in a world that has been spun out of control one of the signature issues of your campaign was getting money out of politics even though I run a super PAC I am with you on this I would love to get out of the business but not while the Republicans are permitted super PACs the playing field must be level you have long sounded the alarm and called out puppet masters like the billionaire Koch brothers. We agree that their cash poisons our democracy. Senator Sanders, I know you recognize this and understand the need to unite to give voice to those who stand to lose so much. While the first priorities are protecting the vulnerable among us and fighting back against Trump, we must also take proactive steps to repair public discourse and vanquish the bottom-feeding organizations that threaten it. He doesn't mention, correct the record there. Fake news is an existential threat to our democracy that must be addressed with clear-eyed focus. Now, if I may, let me speak directly to your supporters. If you voted for Senator Sanders, you almost certainly realize that Trump is
is a very real threat to our way of life, our shared values, and our constitutional democracy. We are all now small d Democrats. What was said in the heat of a campaign cannot drive us apart in the face of such an overwhelming threat. Now is not the time for factionism. The real dividing line going forward in our party is not about ideological direction. It's the question of whether to resist and oppose or accommodate and appease. Senator Sanders, we need to be bold and united without fear or hesitation. We must oppose Trump. We must stand up for and defend our shared values. The bedrock American values you championed of pluralism, equality, and opportunity are ones I share, and I hope that we can be partners in the fight ahead. Sincerely, David Brock. Now, before I share my opinion on this, there's a couple of claims in here that I want to address directly. So, one, he states that he is the head of a super PAC, and as much as he'd like to get out of the the business, well, it has to be a level playing field. So, if Republicans are going to have a super PAC, then Democrats should have one, too. But that's an argument that I entirely reject because Bernie Sanders proved that you don't need to have a super PAC in order to run a successful campaign. He nearly won a rigged primary against Hillary Clinton, who had seven super PACs. As far as we know, there could have been more and certainly more donated to her, but she had seven pro-Hillary super PACs, and she almost lost in spite of the tremendous advantage that she had that the DNC gave her and the media gave her. So don't give me this bullshit about leveling the playing field. Also, Hillary Clinton outspent and outraised Donald Trump during the election, and he still beat her. So money in politics is a virus. So if you want it to go away, then you have to start with the Democratic Party. So by running a super PAC and saying that you need to level the playing field between Democrats and Republicans, you're justifying their willingness to be corrupt. And they've sold out. It's not just that they're influenced by these donations. They've complete and utterly sold out. So I disagree with that, and I reject that argument unequivocally. Now, he also kept repeating that, Bernie Sanders, we need you to do this. We need you to do that. Bernie Sanders does not need to take advice from you, David Brock. Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in America because Bernie Sanders has the right strategy. Bernie Sanders knows what to do because he's out there talking to the American people. Meanwhile, you're in your cozy office sipping on champagne and eating caviar with liberal elites. Just recently, you formed a Coke-like network on the left in order to, quote, kick Donald Trump's ass. So you don't know what the American people want. Don't try to educate Bernie Sanders on what he should or shouldn't do. Now, another thing in here, you talk about fake news. You said it's an existential threat to our democracy that must be addressed with clear-eyed focus, but you had no problem creating fake news during the primaries in order to slander Bernie Sanders. You literally stated that Bernie Sanders did not care about African Americans because one of his ads didn't include enough diversity. That's what you stated. That's your own word. So you created fake news. And then you also say here, what was said in the heat of the campaign cannot drive us apart in the face of such an overwhelming threat. But it's not just about what was said to us, David. It's about what was done to us. One, you didn't just attack Bernie Sanders. You assassinated his character, or certainly tried to. And second of all, the primary was rigged against our candidate. We voted for Bernie Sanders. We supported Bernie Sanders. We donated to Bernie Sanders. And we were defrauded by the DNC. Before we can go forward or even talk about unification, this needs to be addressed. I want an apology for that specifically. Now, taking a step back and looking at this, um, you know, just overall... So I'm kind of split on this, not evenly though, because part of me thinks, all right, Mike, it's time to be, you know, a grown-up and acknowledge that there's some truth to what he's saying. The Democratic Party and liberals in general need to unify in order to effectively uh, combat and defeat Donald Trump. But on the other hand, 
part of me wants to tell David Brock to go fuck himself. And unfortunately for David Brock, the asshole side of me is winning because I think that that's kind of uh, more why I'm inclined to land in terms of my opinion on this because I really have zero desire to work with David Brock, not only because I don't want to, but also because I think that his strategy, it, it doesn't work. Spending large sums of money, funneling money into the campaigns and super PACs of candidates does not work, and that's your strategy. So we have fundamental disagreements that cannot be resolved. Furthermore, you keep using that title progressive, but I don't think you know what it means. I don't consider you a progressive, David Brock, nor do I consider you a liberal. You have very conservative, centrist views at best, although you may agree with us when it comes to social issues, but on economic issues... You're completely different. You can claim to care about money and politics, but you're completely different than us. We have fundamental disagreements. You help to perpetuate this system of corruption and legalized bribery with your super PAC uh, by creating coke-like networks on the left. You like corruption. You're profiting off of corruption because you run multiple pro-Clinton super PACs. The fact that you're associated with a super PAC is already enough for me to dismiss you, but I'm vehemently opposed to the idea that Democrats also need super PACs to effectively combat the campaigns of Republicans. That's bullshit. And furthermore, when you talk about, you know, well, we have we said a bunch of things that, you know, uh, were bad during the campaign. I attacked Bernie. Bernie attacked me and Hillary. So, you know, that's a wash. No, David, it goes a lot further than that. We never really attacked you. We certainly never attacked you personally, but I've covered basically every single attack and smear that you've done against Bernie Sanders. And so let's go ahead and take a look at those. David Brock has stooped to a new low. So according to MSNBC, he has officially filed three ethics complaints against Bernie Sanders with the Federal Election Commission. The Clinton campaign, by proxy of one of her many surrogates, has accused Bernie Sanders of wanting to cheat during the Iowa caucus. What they are saying that he is trying to do is he will be bussing in students from outside of Iowa to participate in the Iowa caucus. He even went so far as to say that Bernie Sanders doesn't care about African-American voters because he doesn't have enough African-American people in one of his ads. Now, he had the audacity to write an open letter to Bernie Sanders and begged him to stop attacking Hillary Clinton. I'm not joking. David Brock alleges that a pro-Sanders super PAC has improperly used Sanders' name and also alleges illegal coordination. Now, the most hilarious part about this is that Sanders doesn't even have a super PAC. Hillary Clinton's attack dog, David Brock, is launching his own Koch Brothers-like donor network to finance attacks on President-elect Donald Trump and to rebuild the political left after Trump's stunning victory over Clinton last week. He's blaming millennials for Hillary Clinton's defeat uh, and is saying they simply failed their candidate. It's not the other way around that Hillary Clinton failed millennials. It's that millennials failed Hillary Clinton. So to recap here, David Brock apologizes to Bernie Sanders and his supporters, and he wants to form a truce in order to effectively fight against Donald Trump. But in spite of that, the cons against him are that he made up lies against Bernie Sanders uh, and tried to smear him. He spent a million dollars during the election to combat online trolls against Hillary Clinton by putting out more trolls into the world, because that's a great strategy. Uh, he also blamed millennials recently for Hillary Clinton's defeat. And furthermore, he wants to perpetuate the system of legalized bribery by championing a super PAC in order to uh, help Democrats get elected and, quote, kick Trump's ass. So if you really want to help defeat Donald Trump, 
I'm with you there, but I don't want to fight with you. I don't want to work alongside you. Here's what you can do. If you truly believe all of those things, David Brock, and you actually do want to defeat Donald Trump, the best thing that you can do is to go away, get out of politics, close down your super PAC, and become a citizen activist. Don't continue to claim to care about money and politics while you're the head of major super PACs. Don't claim to care about these types of values when you use identity politics to smear people who are worried about economic issues that Hillary Clinton was not addressing during the campaign. So again, if you, if you want to fight Donald Trump, then don't help us. Just go away and let us handle it because you have no idea what you're doing. So when it comes to your apology, uh, apology not accepted, David Brock. Fuck off. Keith Ellison was on MSNBC and he was discussing the DNC chair race with Joyanne Reed and she kept asking him these bizarre questions and Ellison gave her a much needed reality check. Take a look. Because one of the arguments, Vox has a great article about it, there are a lot of people who are making the argument that one reason to choose you is that Bernie Sanders supporters would feel that they had gotten something in the bargain, that they'd gotten somebody who was a Sanders supporter early, then did support Hillary Clinton, but at least that you'd represent that point of view. Sure. Is that an important thing to do, or what, or what do you make of the argument by a lot of Clinton supporters who say, wait, Bernie Sanders supporters aren't Democrats, we need to take care of Democrats first. They have to find an identity and they've got to find somebody to rally behind and I think Costa's right. Is it Bernie Sanders or is it a new face that we haven't yet seen? And I don't think it can be Bernie Sanders because as we all know, he's not a Democrat. He's not a Democrat. Well, Bernie supporters are Democrats. I'm a Democrat. And, but I supported both because I believe we got to have inclusion. We, can we send anybody away? We need every single person, Democrat, potential Democrat, independent, Green Party member, we need them all, because you know what? We live in the era of Donald Trump, and he is already moving quick to install the foreclosure king at Treasury, the, uh, the anti-public education person at education, the climate denier at EPA. There is no one we have to waste. And so my message is one of unity. All my fellow candidates in this race are friends. I love them and I mm -hmm. honor their service. But I must say that no matter who wins, and I really believe I should, um, uh, we are all going to have to work together because there is a greater issue in here, and this is the welfare of the American people. Let's talk about another fundamental issue um, that I hear more than anything else probably in my Twitter feed, that people want to see the Democrats fight. They don't want to see them say, we'll work with Donald Trump if dot, dot, dot. Should Democrats work with Trump or fight Trump at every turn? Fight Trump at every turn. If there was an instant, even a nanosecond, in which we thought we might want to work with him, he's proven that that's a bad idea by his appointments. He's already shown what he wants to do. He's gotten more big time Wall Streeters in there than uh, anybody thought he would. He's getting people with you know nefarious ties uh, that he's associating with. I mean, his cabinet, for example, has in the midst of a rental housing crisis. He picks somebody who knows nothing about housing. You know, uh, Ben Carson. Ben Carson, so, neurosurgeon. So, so right. So so we're at a we're at a point where he has made very clear we have no common ground. 
it's our job to, to, to fight Trumpism, and, but not only just to verbally talk bad about it, we've got to go to the neighborhoods, to the VFW halls, the union halls, grocery stores, hair shops, and talk to people in Detroit and Flint, but also in Kentucky, both. We've got to talk to both and explain to people not only the damage that he's doing to them, taking away their health care, won't even work on fixing the water crisis, but actually what we would do which is to help make government work for them. So I absolutely loved his answer there. He said, we need every single person, Democrat, potential Democrat, independent, Green Party member, because if you want to be a successful political party, then you need to bring people into the party, not exclude them. And that's what Joanne Reed has argued that we should do. And when he said that we uh, need to bring in independents and even Greens, I think her head nearly exploded there because that is something that she does not want to hear because Joanne Reed is a partisan hack and she could not be any more hackier if she tried. And I think I just made up a word, but it's fitting for Joanne Reed. Now, there's one thing in there that I do take issue with. He said Bernie Sanders supporters are Democrats and he's right by and large. But this isn't necessarily a correct generalization anymore because after we found out that the primary was in fact rigged against Bernie Sanders, there was Dem Exit, there was Dump Dems Day, and many people, myself included, left the party and we are now independents or Green Party members. Now, whether or not I come back to the party will hinge on who's elected as the DNC chair. So if it is the case that the DNC opts for someone like Tom Perez, who's a corrupt, centrist Democrat, then I will not return to the party. But if Keith Ellison becomes the DNC chair, then I will be more inclined to return maybe in a few years if I choose to vote for someone in the Democratic primaries in 2019 and 2020. Now, basically everything that he talks about here is consistent with his message of party unity. He states Trump is already moving quick to install the foreclosure king as Treasury, the anti-public education person uh, at education, the climate denier at the EPA, and there's no one to waste, so my message is unity. And that is something that's great. I mean, not only is his messaging on point because he's criticizing these people and calling them out for what they are, but... You can't not have Democratic Party unity at a time like this. Now, I'm a hypocrite because I read over David Brock's apology to Bernie Sanders supporters and I said, no, I do not accept your apology and I don't want to unify with you. But I don't want to unify with liberal elites like David Brock more specifically. He breaks bread with the richest of the rich on the left. And I think that if you really want to be effective, then I think unity is important, but at the grassroots level. So I'm in favor of bringing together Hillary Clinton supporters, Bernie Sanders, supporters, Jill Stein supporters, and helping all of us to defeat Donald Trump at the grassroots level, not at the top, but at the bottom. So I think unity is important. And I think that Keith Ellison is on point here. So I'm glad that he gave Joanne Reed this reality check because it's something she needed to hear. After saying that Bernie Sanders can't possibly be the new leader of the Democratic Party because he's not a Democrat, that's just, I think it's something that's odd to say. Because the party itself, it's always been a Big Ten party. They still claim to be a Big Ten party, yet they love excluding independents. And they said that they didn't want independents meddling in the affairs of the Democratic Party. Well, that's not how you bring people in. That's how you lose. And certainly they lost because Hillary Clinton did not pick off enough independents to win against Trump. Now, um, there was another weird question in here from Joanne Reed that I just had to address. She said, should Democrats work with Trump or oppose him at every turn? Yes, Joanne Reed, they should work with Trump. After eight years of obstructionism, they should turn around and support the agenda of Republicans. Ellison's answer was on point. He states, we fight Trump at every turn. He's made it very clear that we have no common ground. And that right there is why I think he should be the DNC chair. 
I don't know what else Donald Trump can do to communicate to liberals and progressives that he's not with us. He wants nothing to do with us. So the fact that we would even contemplate waiting around to see what he's going to do is absurd to me. No, we oppose Donald Trump at every single turn. If there's any common ground, which there's not, then we can work with him. But he's showing that there's absolutely nothing that he could put forward that's going to be good for us. So, for example, at first, he pledged to... Uh, fix our broken infrastructure. But what that really was was a neoliberal policy that would benefit a couple of private corporations. So it's not really like Bernie Sanders' infrastructure spending policy that he proposed when he was running that would put Americans to work. This would benefit private companies. So it's corruption. So there's no common ground between us and Donald Trump. So Joanne Reed needs to understand that working with Donald Trump should be completely off the table. Now, there was also a tidbit in there that I found fascinating. So Keith Ellison said, we've also got to not just talk bad about Donald Trump, but we've got to go to the neighborhoods and mobilize the people. And I think what he wanted to do there was say, we can't just talk bad about Trump. <coughs> Elizabeth Warren... <coughs> That's probably what he was, you know, kind of getting at because that's what Elizabeth Warren does. She talks the talk, but at the end of the day, she doesn't necessarily walk the walk. So I think that he was kind of implicitly signaling to Elizabeth Warren, maybe, that she needs to stop talking and she needs to actually put those words into action. And finally, he discusses his plan as DNC chair to provide financial assistance to local Democratic Party organizations in order to mobilize voters in their area. This is a strategy that I think is just common sense, and the fact that the DNC doesn't already have something like this, it, it just shows the level of incompetence under Debbie Wasserman Schultz in her tenure, and it, it makes it very clear as to why Democrats kept losing under Debbie Wasserman Schultz. It's a joke. Now, there were a couple of other moments in there that I thought were important that weren't included in that clip. So he states, we can't ignore people who we know will vote for us or know won't vote for us. This is incredibly important. It's crucial. It's part of the reason why Hillary Clinton lost, because she thought that she had the youth vote on lock. She thought that she had the Bernie vote on lock. She thought that she had the African-American vote on lock. But during the end of her campaign, she realized that a lot of Floridians uh, that were African-American, they weren't as enthusiastic to come out and support her as she once thought. Uh, she realized millennials were flocking to third-party candidates. She realized that Bernie Sanders supporters weren't like her supporters in 2008, and that after the primary was rigged, they weren't willing to play nice and fall in line. So this is something that the Democratic Party has been missing, and I feel as though Keith Ellison is going into this eyes wide open. He knows what to expect. He knows what they're lacking. So after this interview... If Keith Ellison does not become the DNC chair, I think it's safe to say that the Democratic Party will be out of power for a very long time, and we may very well get Trump for not just four years, but eight years. And I know that that's really too early to say, but Keith Ellison is the only ray of hope that they have. So if he's not able to reform the Democratic Party at the grassroots level, the party's going to suffer badly. And I'm not being hyperbolic. I really believe that. So the numerous conflicts of interest Donald Trump has, I would argue, should make him ineligible to be sworn in until those businesses are placed in a blind trust. But unfortunately, I don't make the rules. Now, Donald Trump claims that there's no longer a conflict of interest because he's going to be ceding control of all of his businesses to his sons. Well, Donald Trump, that's not exactly how it works. That doesn't ameliorate the conflict of interest. And 
George W. Bush's attorney, Richard Painter, even came out and said Donald Trump's conflict of interest, there's still, in fact, a problem. Now, before I get to what he said, because I think he makes a very valid point here, I want to remind you that Richard Painter was the attorney for one of the most corrupt, detestable presidential administrations in American history. So the fact that this guy even has a concept of ethics in his head is surprising to me, but it goes to show you just how pressing this matter actually is. So he states, Mr. Trump will simply turn management of the businesses over to a trustee chosen by him and to two of his sons, Donald Jr. and Eric. This is not a separation at all, and from a conflict of interest vantage point, it won't work, Richard Painter argued in a New York Times op-ed published Thursday. Painter outlined three issues with the arrangement that he said wouldn't prevent conflicts of interest. First, if Mr. Trump continues to own the businesses, he will continue to receive payments they earn from the dealings with foreign governments, he said. He argued most of the payments will be received in violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution, which expressly forbids anyone in public office from receiving any gifts, salary, or profits of any kind from transactions with foreign governments without the consent of Congress. Because if President Trump still owns the businesses, or he is the beneficiary of a trust that owns the businesses, he receives the economic benefit, the emolument, from all of these transactions, Painter added. The former White House attorney also argued that Trump's plan does not remove conflicts of interest and global security threats posed by his existing business relationships with politicians and politically connected businessmen around the world. Third, and perhaps the most dangerous to our national security, our president could be beholden and indebted to undisclosed lenders and other investors around the world, Painter wrote in his op-ed. So this is common sense, and Donald Trump is now representative of what I think is the new definition of corruption. Donald Trump claimed this. It is time to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. We are going to drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. And after months of him railing against Hillary Clinton's conflicts of interest, how she took money from the Clinton Foundation and did favors for her donors while she was Secretary of State and rightfully calling her out for that, now he's doing what Hillary Clinton did, but on a greater scale. This is corruption because you're personally profiting from this. You are connected to your sons. You speak with your sons on a daily basis. So to think that there's no conflict of interest is a fucking joke. And Donald Trump should be ashamed of himself that he talked a big game about draining the swamp and whatnot when he's not willing to drain his own goddamn swamp. And to me, I don't think that Donald Trump ever ran with the intention of actually becoming president because someone who's serious about becoming the president, well, they would know that these business interests would cause a problem inevitably if they were elected. But for Donald Trump, you know, he, he decided to run because he wanted publicity, presumably to launch a media network, and then he ended up winning. And now... He's realizing, well, I'm not going to give up my business interest. This makes me very, very wealthy. It makes me rich. Why would I do that? The salary for a president is $400,000 a year, and he's pledged to not even take that. So, of course, he wants the uh, money stream to keep rolling in. But the problem, Donald Trump, is that we don't know if you're going to represent our interests. We don't know if you're going to go to foreign countries to do government business for us or if you're going to try to enrich yourself. I mean, when you spoke with foreign leaders, when you called up Nigel Farage, for example, and he congratulated you, you talked about 
business interest. You talked about a golf course in the UK. This shouldn't even be a question. He should not be sworn in until he places his business in a blind trust. That's the only way to ensure that it's not going to influence your decisions as president. You are the chief diplomat, Donald Trump. And so I want to make sure that you are our chief diplomat. You are representing our interests and not the interests of your business. So it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. The fact that people are satisfied with him saying that his sons will take over control, that doesn't get rid of the conflict of interest. It doesn't. I'm sorry. So uh, Donald Trump is corrupt. And I think that if he does not get rid of this and place them in a blind trust, then we need to start talking about impeachment because this is corruption. Bernie Sanders is showing that he's one of the few senators with a spine who's willing to stand up to the Republicans in a meaningful way. So he has vowed to fight them if they try to repeal the Affordable Care Act without proposing an adequate replacement. Uh, he's vowed to fight them if they try to privatize Social Security or cut Medicare and Medicaid. And the Republicans have signaled back to Bernie Sanders that they are, in fact, willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him to screw over the American people. The Hill explains, Senate Republicans blocked a push on Tuesday by Senator Bernie Sanders to prevent cuts to entitlement spending. Senators voted 49-49 to 49 on an amendment from the former presidential candidate with 60 votes needed to overcome a procedural hurdle. Maine Senator Susan Collins was the only Republican to vote for Sanders' proposal. Sanders had tried to win over GOP support by arguing that his amendment was in line with campaign rhetoric from President-elect Donald Trump. It says that we should support President-elect Trump when he campaigned throughout this country, saying that I, Donald Trump, will not cut Social Security, will not cut Medicare, will not cut Medicaid, Sanders said ahead of the vote. But Senator Mike Enzi rejected Sanders' logic, firing back that I don't think that's exactly what this is about. A vote in favor of this amendment is a vote against repealing Obamacare, Enzi, who chairs the Senate Budget Committee, added. And that, Mike Enzi, is what you call obfuscation of the truth, because Bernie Sanders is not asking you guys not to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but he is challenging you to put forward an actual solution to replace it. But you're not doing that. But what he is saying, however, is that you should honor the campaign promises of your party's president-elect who consistently maintained that he would not cut Medicare, not cut Medicaid, and not cut Social Security. So he's saying, why don't you follow the rhetoric of your own president-elect and do what he says. Don't cut these social safety net policies that we need that would screw over the American people. But this guy is trying to lie about it. And because Obamacare is relatively unpopular with the American people, unless you poll them on individual amendments of the Affordable Care Act, but this guy is trying to lie and say, well, Bernie, he's trying to stop us from appealing Obamacare. We're doing what the American people wants. They elected Trump to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They elected Republicans to repeal the Affordable Care Act. But that's not what this is about. Bernie Sanders, again, I want to make it clear, very clear. Bernie Sanders is telling you guys to honor what Donald Trump said. Donald Trump literally bragged about being one of the few Republican presidential candidates that would not cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. So if you do that, not only will you hurt the American people at the behest of your donors in the financial services industry, but you're going to be going back on a promise that your president-elect was basically elected on. I mean, many working-class people voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton because they wanted change as one part of it, and also because they actually believed that, unlike other Republicans, he would keep his word and not cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Now, I'm sorry that they were naive enough to believe Donald Trump because I don't believe that he's going to hold up his campaign rhetoric, but what Bernie Sanders is saying shouldn't be something that he has to fight you on. 
you should just not cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security because that's the right thing to do. See, you're rich. You make $200,000 a year. We pay you that. Our tax dollars fund your salary, and yet you want to take money out of our hands. Well, it's unacceptable. And if you really want to fight Bernie Sanders, the American people, when you poll them issue by issue, they're progressive. They agree with Bernie Sanders. So if you really want to go toe-to-toe with a populist, good luck because you're going to lose. So CNN had a town hall featuring Bernie Sanders, and even though there were a ton of great moments, unfortunately, a lot of the good was overshadowed by this. Do you accept the intelligence community's assessment of Russia's involvement in motivating the hacks during the election? And how do you understand the president-elect's resistance to that analysis? Yes, I do agree with the intelligence communities. They are virtually unanimous. I think the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, And we should be clear, this is not just the first time they've done it, and I suspect they're working on other uh, efforts as well in other countries around the world. Uh, This was a way for them to help elect the candidate of their choice, Mr. Trump. Uh, And I think it was also an effort to try to undermine in a significant way American democracy. So I think the evidence is very clear that Russia did play a very harmful role, unacceptable role, and it's something that we have got to deal with. Uh, I think what Mr. Trump appears to be saying uh, is that, no, it's not true, it's not accurate, I don't trust the intelligence committees, uh, and I think uh, that is an unfortunate position to hold. So after this aired, I had a ton of progressives reach out to me saying, Mike, what the hell is going on? Why is Bernie Sanders pushing this same hysteria over Russia that the Democratic Party establishment is doing? And let me just say this, part of me thinks that Bernie Sanders doesn't necessarily buy into this hysteria completely and he never talks about it but what i do think that bernie sanders is doing is he's being calculative here which is uncharacteristic of bernie typically because we all know that if bernie sanders said anything different he would have been crucified by the democratic party and right now he's trying to reform them so i think that him saying this is a way of saving face uh and i don't necessarily believe that bernie sanders buys into the russian hysteria as much as democrats do and certainly He's talking more about what Democrats need to do to reach out to voters, whereas the rest of the establishment right now is just going crazy like chickens with their head cut off over this hysteria and the alleged hacking of John Podesta and the DNC's emails. Now, what I would have done if I were Bernie Sanders is I would have flipped it on Chris Cuomo. So I would have said, do you accept the substance of what was in those emails? Because by all accounts, these are legitimate emails which exposed overt corruption of Hillary Clinton, and it also exposed that the the DNC rigged the primary against me. Do you accept the substance there? And furthermore, if I were Bernie, I would have taken that opportunity to call out the network of CNN that Chris Cuomo works for and say, you guys have been incredibly irresponsible because what they do is they constantly perpetuate this notion that the election itself was hacked. Because if you watch CNN, they'll say, uh, well, Trump responded to election hacking that will be the banner on the screen and i saw it at the gym like i've been seeing this it's been a constant thing when you say that the election was hacked you're implying something much more sinister went on what we're talking about here is allegedly hacked emails which what we know is that they were leaked but you're saying that these emails being hacked or leaked is tantamount to the election being hacked and that is complete and utterly irresponsible and it's also factually untrue with that being said though regardless of what bernie sanders actually thinks about this uh, i do take issue with it and i have to call him out where he's wrong now there are two claims that he said in particular that bothered me so one he said that 
Russia tried to influence our democracy by hacking the emails of the DNC and John Podesta, and he also states that the evidence that we're not allowed to see yet is overwhelming. So first, when it comes to whether or not WikiLeaks and Russia tried to influence the election, to say that WikiLeaks releasing the emails of the DNC and John Podesta actually influenced the outcome of the election, I think that's a dubious claim because we don't necessarily know the extent to which those emails swayed voters. As far as we know, it had zero impact because before the election, there are many media outlets that were actually making fun of the release of these emails because for months, WikiLeaks hyped it up and then when they released it, they said it really was nothing that would be harmful to Hillary Clinton and that these emails were not consequential. But after the election, all of a sudden, we have a complete 180, and now we're supposed to believe that these emails cost Hillary Clinton the election. We had the Daily Beast write, WikiLeaks trolls the world, delivers nothing on Hillary. Washington Post states, Scandal, WikiLeaks reveals Hillary Clinton to be reasonable. Vox said, WikiLeaks reveals John Podesta's secret for making creamy risotto. So they literally were making fun of the release of John Podesta's emails, suggesting that there was nothing in there. It's a drip, drip, drip of distraction, with campaign chair John Podesta's hacked emails now being released on a daily schedule by Julian Assange, trying to meddle with the U.S. election. No bombshells, but a revealing look at Clinton's strategy. This is like a 9-11 for us. 9-11. No bombshells. 9-11. No bombshells. 9-11. And furthermore, I think that you can make a stronger counter-argument to what Bernie Sanders is saying here. So if you're trying to claim that these emails influenced the outcome of the election, regardless of who won, wouldn't you also agree that if these emails are credible because their legitimacy has, has not been called into question. If these emails were real, then doesn't that strengthen democracy because it allowed voters to make a more informed choice? Isn't that what we want? I mean, this isn't necessarily my argument, although it is to some degree, but I'm playing devil's advocate here and I'm saying, well, if you think that this influenced democracy and it influenced the outcome of the election, well, didn't it influence it in a good way? I mean, yeah, it's bad that Donald Trump won, but if you give voters more information, I think that that's good. So I'm glad that these emails were out here because they confirmed what we were saying, that Hillary Clinton and Debbie Wasserman Schultz rigged the primaries against Bernie Sanders and that there was a lot of conflicts of interest and pay-to-play deals between the Clinton Foundation and Hillary Clinton's State Department. Now, when he gets to the evidence, he says the evidence was overwhelming. Well, Bernie, if the evidence is overwhelming, then why can't the American people see the evidence? All that we can see is these reports that reiterate the same thing that we already know, the same thing we can see when we turn on the mainstream media, that a bunch of anonymous intelligence officials are claiming, yes, it was Russia that hacked into the emails of John Podesta and the DNC. Why should we accept that when there is contradictory evidence that claims that the DNC, their emails were exposed by an insider who gave that information to WikiLeaks? We also know that Julian Assange claims that this was not Russia. And furthermore, there's evidence to suggest that John Podesta was the victim of a phishing scam, and that's what ultimately exposed his emails. So we have contradictory evidence, and we're not allowed to see the evidence because it's classified, but yet you claim that the evidence is overwhelming? I think that's disingenuous, Bernie. I'm sorry. I love you, but I'm sorry. That is not true. What is overwhelming is what the intelligence community says, but that doesn't change the fact that we're not allowed to see the actual evidence. So I'm frustrated that Bernie Sanders, who was revealed to be the victim because of these leaks, which revealed that Hillary Clinton and the DNC sabotaged his campaign, 
I'm sad that he would parrot this same line. This is a distraction from the substance, and I'm sad that Bernie Sanders can't see that. Overt corruption was revealed with the release of these emails, and if we're going to penalize Russia for hacking into the emails of our public officials, why don't we stop doing it to people ourselves? We literally were caught spying on the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. So if we are expecting other people to not do that to us, we should lead by example. So to Democrats, you know, if Russia allegedly does it, that's not okay. But if we do it, it's perfectly fine. We're not going to speak out against that. No, we need to not be hypocrites when it comes to hacking others and cybersecurity. And furthermore, Democrats like to cite Lindsey Graham and John McCain as people who are apparently horrified with Russia undermining our democracy. And since even these guys believe it, then it must be true because, well, if they're siding with Democrats, they must have a good reason to side with Democrats. But no, you idiots, don't you see what's going on? This undermines your point because they're warmongers. They want war with every single country imaginable. They've never seen a war that they don't like. So they probably want war with Russia, and they don't actually give a shit about Democrats or the integrity of our elections. And all that I'm saying is that if Russia actually did do it, then one, you need to increase cybersecurity immediately to prevent this from happening in the future, and two, declassify the evidence so that we can see it before you take action against Russia, but that's already too late. And finally, don't saber-rattle against Russia right before a madman takes office. You're literally trying to create tensions with Russia and escalate conflict right before Donald Trump will be sworn in. That's just crazy. You're insane to me if you want to do that. So in the end, here's my message to Bernie. Russia did not rig the election against Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, but the emails that were released, regardless of who released them, they confirmed that the primaries was rigged against you, Bernie Sanders. Now, by parroting the same line of the establishment, you're allowing them to escape accountability, and that's unacceptable. You're the victim, Bernie. The election was rigged against you. So don't allow them to form this distraction and then buy into it. I don't care if they try to crucify you or call you out for it or call you a traitor. You have to do what's right, Bernie. So don't let them influence you on this. So I expect Bernie Sanders to go on talking about the real issues and he'll put this aside. But at the end of the day, I wish that Bernie Sanders would have been more nuanced on this issue, I guess. President Obama recently made his farewell address and he's probably packed his bags and pretty soon he will be leaving office. Now, I credit Obama for getting me involved in politics in a meaningful way, and I also credit him as being probably the most LGBT-friendly president ever, but when you kind of step back and look at the totality of President Obama's administration and his legacy overall, I think that the negatives are so bad that they're going to outweigh a lot of the positive things that he did. So, for example, he commuted the sentences of drug offenders. I think this is great. Um, and he did a lot of executive orders that uh, I think are good. So, for example, he made it so that way federal employees would have LGBT protections and whatnot. So I, I like a lot of what Obama did. But unfortunately, when you consider someone's legacy, you have to look at the good and the bad. Now, Cornell West echoed my sentiments and he wrote an op-ed in The Guardian, which I thought was fantastic because it explained very clearly why progressives were disappointed with Barack Obama. He states, the age of Barack Obama may have been our last chance to break from our neoliberal soulcraft. We are rooted in market-driven brands that shun integrity and profit-driven policies that trump public goods. Our post-integrity and post-truth world is suffocated by entertaining brands 
brands and money-making activities that have little or nothing to do with truth, integrity, or the long-term survival of the planet. We are witnessing the postmodern version of the full-scale gangsterization of the world. The reign of Obama did not produce the nightmare of Donald Trump, but it did contribute to it, and those Obama cheerleaders who refused to make him accountable bear some responsibility. A few of us begged and pleaded with Obama to break with the Wall Street priorities and bail out Main Street, but he followed the advice of his quote, smart neoliberal advisors to bail out Wall Street. In March of 2009, Obama met with Wall Street leaders. He proclaimed, I stand between you and the pitchforks. I am on your side and I will protect you, he promised them, and not one Wall Street criminal executive went to jail. We called for the accountability of U.S. torturers of innocent Muslims and the transparency of U.S. drone strikes killing innocent civilians. Obama's administration told us no civilians had been killed, and then we were told a few had been killed, and then maybe 65 or so had been killed. Yet, when an American civilian, Warren Weinstein, was killed in 2015, there was an immediate press conference with deep apologies and financial compensation. And today, we still don't know how many have had their lives taken away. We hit the streets with Black Lives Matter and other groups and went to jail for protesting against police killing black youth. We protested when the Israeli Defense Forces killed more than 2,000 Palestinians, including 550 children, in 50 days. Yet, Obama replied with words about the difficult plight of police officers, department investigations with no police going to jail, and the additional $225 million in financial support of the Israeli army. Obama said not a mumbling word about the dead Palestinians and children, but he did call Baltimore black youth criminals and thugs. In addition, Obama's education policy unleashed more market forces that closed hundreds of public schools for charter ones. The top 1% got nearly two-thirds of income growth in eight years, even as child poverty, especially black child poverty, remained astronomical. Labor insurgencies in Wisconsin, Seattle, and Chicago, vigorously opposed by Mayor Rahm Emanuel, a close confidant of Obama, were passed over in silence. In 2009, Obama called New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg an outstanding mayor, yet he overlooked the fact that more than 4 million people were stopped and frisked under Bloomberg's watch. Along with Carl Dix and others, I sat in jail two years later for protesting these very same policies that Obama ignored when praising Bloomberg. The gross killing of U.S. citizens with no due process after direct orders from Obama was cast aside by neoliberal supporters of all colors, and Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, Jeffrey Sterling, and other truth-tellers were demonized just as the crimes they exposed were hardly mentioned. The president's greatest legislative achievement was to provide health care for over 25 million citizens, even as another 20 million were still uncovered. But it remained a market-based policy, created by the Conservative Heritage Foundation and first pioneered by Mitt Romney in Massachusetts. Obama's lack of courage to control Wall Street criminals, and his lapse of character in ordering drone strikes unintentionally led to right-wing populist revolts at home and ugly Islamic fascist rebellions in the Middle East. And as deporter-in-chief, nearly 2.5 million immigrants were deported under his watch. Obama policies prefigure Trump's barbaric plans. What a sad legacy for our hope and change candidate. Even as we warriors go down swinging in the fading names of truth and justice. I thought that that was beautifully written, so shout out to Cornell West. He said everything that I was feeling, and I agree with that 100%. Now, the thing about Obama is that he really does have a sad legacy, and he's going out really badly. He's going out condemning the people who helped get him in the office. So, I mean, he rode 
off of a progressive movement that he catalyzed. And now he's blaming us, for example, for one of his own failures. Reuters explains, President Barack Obama said on Friday that criticism from the left wing of his own Democratic Party helped feed into the unpopularity of Obamacare, his signature health care reform law. In the dissatisfied column are a whole bunch of Bernie Sanders supporters who wanted a single-payer plan, Obama said in an interview. The problem is not that they think Obamacare is a failure. The problem is that they don't think it went far enough and that it left too many people still uncovered, Obama said. Right. And you shouldn't be angry with us for believing, rightfully so, that healthcare is a human right. Don't get angry at us because you sold out to the health insurance industry. You have the votes to get a single-payer system passed. And spineless corporatist Democrats didn't push you for it, and you certainly didn't push them on it. You were a failure, Obama. You were a complete and utter failure. So although there were some good things that we can look back on for your legacy, well, a lot of what you did will be undone. All the executive orders that you signed will be undone by Trump and the Republicans. The Affordable Care Act will most likely be undone by Trump and the Republicans. So when that's all said and gone... What's left is a really sad legacy where someone who claimed to be a progressive upped the amount of wars that we had. So we are now at war with Libya and Syria. Since you took office, you ramped up George Bush's drone strikes that killed innocent civilians in the Middle East and North Africa. Also, you deported millions of undocumented immigrants and broke up countless families. So in the end, Obama, you've tarnished your own legacy. You have no one to blame but yourself for selling out. Don't blame us because you decided to not have a spine and fight for what's right and fight for what you know is right. And you promised us that lobbyists would not control your administration. Yet, the minute you get in office, you appointed people from Goldman Sachs to your administration. So your legacy, in a nutshell is that you were a centrist, sellout president. You weren't one of the worst presidents, for sure, but certainly you weren't one of the best. So in the end, I think your legacy, by and large, will be forgotten. And right now, it's certainly characterized by disappointment, especially among the progressive community. So even though it's easy for a lot of us to get wrapped up in you know all of the sentimental feelings and the nostalgia and hope that we felt in 2008 we feel a lot different now we once felt hope but now we feel angry and in part this is because of you this is because of your failure and what you did and how you betrayed progressives so in the end obama does in fact have a very sad legacy and i hope he's ashamed of it well, that's all I got for you guys. I want to thank you all for tuning in so loyally every single week. We are entering the Trump era officially, unfortunately. And, you know, it's going to be a really challenging time for progressives. But I think that if we all commit to activism, uh, protesting, making calls, then we can make maybe a little bit of a difference. You know, uh, so we all are part of this fight. I think that I've given people the impression that we really have to rely on politicians and elect politicians that will represent us, but really, they're not representing us, so we really have to represent ourselves and make some calls and put in the time to actually organize and combat Donald Trump's harmful agenda and the agenda of Republicans. So in the end, that's all I got for you guys. If you're a member, a Patreon patron, or submitted a donation through us via PayPal, uh, I want to thank you because you helped this show not only survive, but thrive. I'll see you guys next week. Have a good day.